Um, and thank you, Patricia, for such a warm and personal welcome. It, it's, it's deeply flattering. Um, it, it's good to be back. It's always good to be back. And when you all graduate, um, you know, remember, savor these moments because it's, 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 this is home in, in its own way. And so it's, it's really nice to be back. Um, and I'm delighted to come and speak to you today. And uh, the invitation is, is terrific because uh, um, what I'm doing today is I'm going to present a paper that is in progress. And I thought that with uh, all these um, big, big brains in the room. Um, I could get some good feedback um, on something that I'm working on. Um, and it's part of my grant, um, my grant which has moved in a more decidedly theoretical direction on constructing authority. I, um, the, 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 the direction my research has taken has veered a little bit into the sociology of our profession and the sociology of international law itself. So the project that I'm trying to come to um, has a few prongs dealing with um, the legal form itself and the importance of certain influential actors. And one of the pieces that I intend to write after this one's all written up will be on the idea of a systemic official, kind of doing a riff on heart. But anyway, so um, that is what my project is leading towards. And the piece that I'll be presenting to you today is on um, a claim that I make about the determinability of law. Um, now, um, indeterminacy is one of these key factors that I think remain slightly under-theorized, both in domestic legal scholarship and international legal scholarship. And um, th th there remains a difficulty in identifying um, the effects of indeterminacy rather than just kind of pointing at it. Um, to my mind, and the argument that I make is that indeterminacy brings forward certain forms of authority. Um, and without a lack of systematicity in addressing how international actors claim and exercise that authority to cure indeterminacy or to, to, to address indeterminacy within the system, um, we, we, we remain, I think, with a small gap in the way we think about law. Um, as with nature, law pours a vacuum. And those practices that cure the indeterminacies that arise from time to time are very much part of the law itself. So authority then is located in that antecedent exercise of indeterminacy. Um, so the paper that I'll be presenting, um, one of the claims I'll be making is that law and legal systems construct and recognize mechanisms of determinability. And in situations of legal indeterminacy, certain law-applying actors are empowered to exercise their discretion by taking law-creative measures. Um, the fact that the legal system has this self-empowering dimension in filling the vacuum um, empowers these actors, and especially um, law interpreting, law applying authorities, and I think you all know that I'm talking about courts, um, um, to exercise systemic authority, as it were. And so I'll be looking at that. I'll also be looking at the question of identifying authority in a wider sense and what authority means. And I, I'm departing slightly from a sort of Razian or Hartian view that authority is a question of legitimate authority and is about the power to do or not do something. I'm looking at authority as the ability to influence or conduct your behavior, not merely um, through the content of what you're saying, but also um, through the exercise of a certain status within within a given political community or a given legal community. Um, it's, it's what Herbert Hart calls content-independent authority. So um, if, if that is true, and if we do have actors that exercise this content-independent authority, then that opens a certain place for the central, basically the central point that I'm making, that um, these law-applying authorities exercise systemic authority within a system. And so rather than fixate on formal designations of authority, I'd like to look at um, a functional account of law-applying authorities. Um, I'd like to look at how certain actors marshal and command recognition, um, what sort of practices they use uh, in order to do so, and 
how um, the mechanism of closure, that mechanism of determinability that I spoke of, um, helps to advance and entrench their role within, within the international legal system. Um, there are two important limitations to this, and I, I, I have to admit the paper is a bit chunky, and um, it's 17 pages, and that's after cutting. But the, if, I can, if I can get to it, there are two limitations that I will point to um, about this sort of social um, or sociological observation on international law. One of them is internal. Um, I think that there's insufficient theorizing in, in what we identify as legal officials within international law, as systemic officials, and part of the research that I'd like to take forward is that. And I'd like to broaden the category of legal actors um, beyond, you know, states make law and courts apply law, uh, to think a little bit about the horizontal character of international law a bit more specifically, and, and what a broader consideration of who exercises authority and why, and who is recognized as having authority, what that means for the nature of international law itself. Um, and the second critique is, so I'll just advance the idea, and I'll, if we can develop it later, I'll try, um, is about the circularity in any sort of approach to law applying authorities. If, if the authority commanded by a legal official is contingent on an enabling legal rule, and then their authority basically is, is so if it's contingent on the enabling legal rule and then their authority is exercised through uh, the enforcement of that legal rule, um, you start seeing a circularity between system and official that I think deserves a little bit more critical scrutiny. So, um, uh, because it presumes the necessity of this human intervention, of, of, this, of this official intervention. And it's one of those things that I think ought not to be presumed if we're going to think systematically and rigorously about international law. Um, so, um, essentially, I mean, the point of this research, and I realize that you know, some of it is not fully developed, and that's kind of the point um, of coming out here today, is that I think, I think it, it, it tells us something both about the systematic unity of international law, but also about the unity of the international legal profession and whether or not we are academics, practitioners, activists, or um, in the employ of a state or in the employ of an international organization, we, are all, we all have membership in this professional community. And that membership is guaranteed in part through um, a number of techniques uh, of argument, um, a, a certain level of proficiency that is required in order to be able to, 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 to speak fluently, to, to be able to, to be admitted into that community. And I think that has an important social dimension as well that I won't go into here, but is, is, is the focus of some of my future research. So anyway, um, let's move to the law applying authorities and the centrality of legal officials in the concept of a legal system. And I'm going to focus on Hart on this. This, this, is, this is a claim made by Hart that um, the that the law applying official is a necessary and sufficient condition for the existence of a legal system. Um, its rules of recognition must be accepted by these legal officials as common public standards of official behavior. And to him, and this is partly why he would condemn international law in the 60s as not being um, a proper legal system, was the acceptance by these officials is the system constituting a point, constantly reaffirming and creating the edges. And Joseph Raz takes that point further and, and argues that norm-applying norm institutions are a necessary component of law. I'll quote, um, many if not all legal philosophers have been agreed that one of the defining features of law is that it is an institutionalized normative system. The existence of norm-creating institutions, though characteristic of modern legal systems, is not a necessary feature of all legal systems, but the existence of certain type of norm-applying institutions is. So, if that applies to international law, if, 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 you know, if we take that logic and we apply it to, to, to our system, then the natural, natural first point is, is the role of the international judge. 
um, the, the international judges who've been placed there. Um, through the consent of states in creating these mechanisms, specifically, and you know, I mean, okay, so my, my, my uh, career record will probably indicate that I'll start talking about the ICJ soon, so I will, um, but, but the PCIJ and the ICJ um, um, occupy this specific role and, 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 and have always occupied this role, um, even with the proliferation of other international courts and institutions um, and alternative forms of dispute resolution like the WTO um, and like the, the emergence of the investment uh, tribunal system. So the question, though, um, arises as to why their practice um, has to, can be distinguished from norm-enforcing institutions such as the police or prison officials or other enforcement and administrative officials that are not key to the identification of a legal system and then comes to be regarded as authoritative. So because international law, although we do have the existence of these judicial institutions, um, does not carry any official designation of judicial institutions as such, um, and again, that is why Hart thought that, that, um, that, that, that international law couldn't be. And I'll quote again. Uh, so in relation to international law, Hart said, the absence of these law-applying adjudicatory institutions means that the rules for states resemble that simple form of social structure consisting of only primary rules of obligations, which, when we find it among societies of individuals, we're accustomed to contrast with a developed legal system. So I, I don't agree. Um, I, I, think, I, think, I think to... To apply this kind of thinking to an international legal system misses the point, but also I, I'm not entirely sure it is correct. I, I don't think you need to have formal designation. And in fact, what we do have in international law is a rather regular and rather um, systematic form of, 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 of ascribing authority, de facto authority, as it were, um, um, in the way that we teach it, in the way that we practice it, etc. I mean, all of you have picked up Brownlee. Um, all of you have picked up a good textbook, and although we claim and claim again that you know um, international law is formed of this, this, you know, Article 38, treaties and customs, etc., how do we prove it? We prove it through judicial decisions. Which judicial decisions do we cite? We cite those of the ICJ. And so I think, I think if we do have this lack of systematic institutional structures, but we do have these systematic practices, it's interesting. And I'm not necessarily saying this changes um, the way we should theorize about law, but rather it's, an, it's another facet that helps us to explain and to understand um, why international law is law. And to be honest, why that debate about whether international law is not law has become rather fatuous. Um, um, so, yeah, um, my argument is because we do have this sense of de facto authority. And because this de facto authority commands general compliance from the system's legal subjects, and there I would place great importance on the practices of states, um, they, do, they do actually fulfill Hart's internal point of view. And one doesn't need to demand that formal centralization. So although a fully articulated concept of law applying authorities is perhaps beyond the scope of what I'm trying to do here, um, there are some limited understandings that can advance, uh, observations that can advance our understanding of the concept. Um, this functionalist account, I think, allows us to dispense with that concern that norm-applying institutions are not identified by name. Um, I think that, that it's, it's, there's a good argument that says that they should be identified by the way they fulfill their functions rather than their functions themselves. Um, because courts have the power to make an authoritative determination of legal subjects, legal situations, and they do so through the application of existing legal norms, the fact that their decisions are binding on their addressees, even if they're substantively wrong, suggests that they enjoy at least a limited power to determine that legal situation. So instead of international law's institutional differences being considered as defects to be resolved in the domestic law paradigm, I, I argue that they ought better to be read as illuminating the different purposes of international law as opposed to domestic law. 
um, as such, a functionalist account of the concept of law applying authority, I think, is helpful. And the relevant factors would then be rooted in two steps of social practice. The law applying authority must regard itself as bound to apply the law and not free to disregard it when it finds its application undesirable. And more importantly, it must achieve recognition as a legitimate official from the wider legal community it serves. The fact emerges that within our international legal system, um, actors are bound to take account of the legal conclusions made by law-applying institutions in relating their arguments to them. Um, it is this characteristic which I think endows the decisions of, relative, uh, of relevant norm-applying institutions with authorities. And um, I mean, there probably could be some empirical research on this, but I, I, I think, I think it's, it's pretty evident that when one reads and one thinks about international law, we see a remarkable consistency in the way we communicate with one another. We see a remarkable consistency in the sorts of sources that states will use to marshal legal arguments, both in political settings as well as in a more legalized judicial setting. And that is the characteristic, that social practice um, that, that, that I believe helps to constitute um, authority in international law and the context in, and the context in which it's claimed. So, um, gosh, um, I'm already uh, 10 minutes in. Okay, um, moving to the social practice of officials as an explanatory device. If law exists as institutional fact, existing because of a belief in law, rather than its abstract existence as sort of a thought object, then the recognition as such in social practice is crucial. And that, there, I think, Hart becomes useful again, because he tells us about this social thesis um, that, um, that basically the existence of the legal system depends on the social practice of legal officials as a necessary condition. And th that is for two reasons. One, you need to have a sufficient number of subjects who comply with valid rules of behavior. And secondly, you need to have that community of officials who perceive the law as having sufficient authority in setting out common standards and behaviors. These together constitute that internal point of view and nothing else, I think. And it is here, and not on theories of language, on the potential to achieve determinacy or clarity through a hermeneutical process where Hart's solution is found. He situates that power to cure indeterminacy through the convergent behaviors and agreements of law-applying authorities. And accordingly, the social practice relevant engaging communitarian semantics, sorry, I, th that's what happens when you start reading from the script, you start using big, complicated sentences, I should simplify that, but essentially, if there's a convergence in the, in the use of sources, rules, and norms by law-applying authorities, that helps not only to ascertain the existence of the rule, it helps to constitute and crystallize the behavior of subjects, and that in turn serves to reinforce the, 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 the existence of the legal system as a whole. So um, Jean D'Apremont has written a bit on this, and he's, he's, you know, his book on formalism um, uh, was a bit of a resuscitation of Hart for the purpose of identifying law ascertainment criteria. And he suggested that the convergence of the practice of these law-applying authorities not only serves to identify the existence of the legal system, but also the meaning of formal criteria of law identification, essentially sources. And he's taken, he's taken this to advance a claim that formal law ascertainment can potentially provide sufficient guidance as to what is law and what is not law. And um, though he concedes that even limited determinacy doesn't deprive law applying authorities of that large margin of discretion they enjoy when determining what is a rule, what is not a rule, um, his argument is that law applying authorities and lawyers as officials of the system share that meaningful normative language. And so I. I would like to develop that point further, and I will a little bit later on, um, in, in respect of the common discourse rules of our epistemic community. But I think, I think for now, it's, it's enough to say that to justify authority to social practice is yet another technique through which to argue in favor 
of a mechanism of determinability through the internal mechanisms of that legal system. If the system can achieve closure through the practice of these officials, then the system can self-perpetuate. To use uh, Nicholas Luhmann's term, it, it, it starts to possess an autopoetic nature. It, it, it protects itself, it closes itself. When faced with a challenge, it repairs itself. So, um, how does it do that? Well, we do that through the interpretation and application of legal rules. And if law-applying authorities can do this, and that practice is regarded as constitutive, then what, what, what essentially occurs here is a feedback loop that becomes a little bit circular. Um, one could say that if you're, if you're a law-applying authority, if you're a court, and, you're only, and you're, you're only interpreting and applying the law, you're only partaking in the semantics of the formal criteria of law ascertainment, and lawmaking is only generated through the subsequent validation of those decisions of international courts by those who matter, the states, the practices of states. Um, but this presupposes the ability for each law-applying authority to verify whether other authorities are also using that law ascertainment. And that's where that cross-citation and cross-fertilization of case law by international courts and tribunals becomes particularly relevant. And I think, I think it is one thing to say that we, obey the, we, we respect the judgments of the ICJ because states cite them. And by and large, that does happen to be true, although they do so strategically. But another thing that is equally interesting is the remarkable way in which other international instances and tribunals also refer to the practices of that court. When you're the WTO appellate body and you're trying to ascertain that something is custom, you're not necessarily going to cite the European Court of Human Rights. You're far more likely, however, to cite the practice of the ICJ. And there is no formal reason to do so, but I think there exists a social reason within our international legal system to do so. And that circulation of decisions um, essentially perpetuates and develops and, 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 and refines a language, a common language spoken by all of us. It's a system of mutual confirmation. And I think, I think and I mean, look, this is a um, um, broad brush approach to it, and I think there's a lot of work that can be done on it, but I think it allows us also to understand and to apprehend um, the practice of domestic courts. And I mean, Antonio's, you know, um, is much more expert in, in, in that engagement of domestic courts in international law than I am. Um, but I think, I think to, to view this with a little bit of distance from formal sources theory, one can also see how domestic courts also participate in that mutual confirmation system in the way that they address, grapple, and engage with international law. And that helps us, in turn, to situate our role within that. Now. So Jean's, uh, Jean d'Apremont's resuscitation of Hart's social thesis, I think, is compelling, and it does serve to address the problem of determinacy. It does engage with it well. But I will say one thing. I think he also falls prey to the limitation of Hart's social thesis on the domestic plane. There's an insufficient attempt, to my mind, to theorize as to how legal officials come to be identified and why. And uh, d'Apremont's book and his writing, he doesn't engage with that question. He kind of acknowledges that it exists and then he moves on because he's more interested in the criteria themselves that they're applying rather than the identity of the official so doing. Um, it, it's not of his, I mean, it's not of his own making, you know, but, but, but basically this is also a problem that besets domestic lawyers. And uh, one of the better scholars on this is Brian Tamahana. Um, but his, his way of defining a category of legal officials, of systemic officials, is basically functional. It's whomever, as a matter of social practice, members of a group, including legal officials themselves, identify and treat as legal officials. Um, 
you can all see the obvious circularity in that definition. And although it does allow for a wider range of legal actors, um, it goes beyond courts. Um, and I think in international law, that kind of practice could also encompass administrative agencies, regulatory bodies, and even non-governmental organizations. I mean, I think those of you who are versed in international humanitarian law probably know about the important um, guiding role that the Red Cross plays in um, constraining state behavior and the, 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 the amount of, of deference it commands. Um, when it sets out interpretative guidance on legal obligations. Um, but again, one thing that we see in this definition is that it's socially based, and recognition by other legally relevant actors is constitutive of your authority. So in essence, you get that circularity again and again and again. Um, and, and, and the fact that norm-applying institutions are regarded as essential to ascertain the existence of a legal system as such remains unquestioned. Um, so I, I think... I think in, on this point, and the research that I'm trying to do now is, um, is to provide us a more comprehensive theory of how the position of those authorities should be apprehended within international law. Um, and to question, I think, that systematic necessity of law-applying authorities. I mean, if we have no such official designation, but it exists as a matter de facto, are we, are we compromising the form of our legal system? Are we compromising the, the, the way that, we, that, that the international legal system operates? Um, are we blinding ourselves? to some realities. Um, and it, it's problematic, I think, to do so for a number of reasons. I mean, there's a lovely point that uh, Pierre Bourdieu wrote. Um, he's, he's a sociologist that, that wrote um, mostly in French, but this, this is one of his only pieces in English. Um, Judges who directly participate in the administration of conflicts and who confront the ceaselessly renewed juridical exigency preside over the adaptation to reality of a system which would close, risk closing itself into rigid rationalism if it were left to theorists alone. So he's talking to me. <laughs> Though the more or less extensive freedom of interpretation granted to them in the application of rules, judges introduce the changes and innovations which are indispensable for the survival of the system. So if we apply this to international law, a that kind of broad definition of law-applying authority enables the international order to act exactly as I was describing in the Lumani in terms of perpetuating and extending the reach of the legal system into ever-expanding areas. You know, um, it's, it's a bit pithy, but you know, th that I don't think we've ever met lawyers um, who you can't throw a problem at and will throw law right back at it and try to fix it. You know? And I think, I think that is not in itself problematic, but what might be problematic is that we don't question why we do it, how we do it, and the method through which we're exercising that. Um, I, think, I, think it, um, I think without doing that, if we just accept and don't, don't think about the role of these officials in the making of the law, we, we end up reifying them. Um, their role is presumed essential, and there's no further justification. So if, if, if the official then, you know, let's, let's take that a bit further. So I'm, I'm already running a bit out of time, but I'll try to, I've got 10 minutes, 10 minutes? Okay, good. Um, if, let's, let's take that thought experiment a bit further. If the official is essential to the existence of the system, then I think I've, uh, one claim that I would put forward is that the very definition of law becomes confused with its ascertainment through authoritative official validation. And the law ceases to have any sort of meaningful legal form. Sources stop mattering as much as practices. And I think that becomes problematic. Um, um, Jason Beckett has, um, has, has made an interesting argument in this regard, um, that the better view, rather than, than take this as gospel, is to look at the practice of officials as understanding official behavior, and that law's existence is shown, rather than is, in the way that particular rules are identified by courts or other officials. Because when they reach these particular conclusions, when they reach conclusions on the footing that a particular rule has been correctly identified as the law, 
what they say carries a special authoritative status conferred on it by other rules. Um, I think this is, this is something that could be explored a bit further. If we view the practice of legal officials and the existence of a legal system rather as a question of fact, then we get out of that impasse a bit. A legal official is factually empowered by a factually existing legal system to resolve disputes thereafter. And then their social practice becomes not so much a formal source of law, but a material or factual source of law. And if legal theory demands the existence of these law-applying authorities, then I think the reason why this demand, as a matter of theorizing, is concerned should be f further explored. Um, another point that I'd like to make is that the social thesis relies excessively, I think, on the argument that legal rules and legal officials do not exist in the abstract, but that they're contingent upon one another and within the system. It's not that legal norms have some essence that endows them with a distinctively legal character, but rather, except that they are norms belonging to a legal system. Uh, so another circularity arises um, about the property or set of properties that all legal systems have in common that distinguish them from non-legal systems. To recall, Hart's basic critique of international law's failure to meet his criteria of a legal system was that lack of official agencies. And so um, I, guess, I guess what I'm trying to say here, and uh, forgive me because I keep, I keep going back to the circularity point, but I think it occurs over and over again, um, is that um, th th there is a reliance on a certain type of hierarchy. And if, we, if, if, if international law remains this generally horizontal-based legal order, then we are imposing a form of hierarchy upon it that maybe it doesn't understand that is alien to it. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to accept that without presuming it, then we're doing something wrong. And maybe there is that hierarchy. Maybe there is, th there is the social practice that validates the practice and privileges the practice of certain actors over others. But if there is, then we need to think about that a little bit more systematically. Um, so one of the last points then that I think I'll make today is, um, is about if there, if there is if there is this, um, this um, systemic authority of a certain of officials, I think we should look a little bit more at their common discourse rules, at what they are actually saying, rather than the fact that what they're saying is accepted. Um, I, I, I know it's a little bit... Uh, I know that this picture is a little bit bleak because we're basically suggesting that international law becomes this elite practice of mainly elite international judges and a few legal practitioners and advisors. Um, you know, um, um, essentially... Um, how can I put it? Uh, constituting themselves into Schachter's Invisible College. Um, and that can be problematic, but I think, I think there's, a useful, there's a useful point of guidance of looking into what they're doing um, and looking at what that shared ethos is that they can, that, that they can see. And one of the things I would argue um, is that um, that shared ethos um, is not one that's necessarily value-driven, but it is definitely one that is, that, is, um, that is driven by safeguarding the coherence of the system. Um, one thing that we can say, I think, about law-applying officials is that they privilege systemic unity and coherence um, in many respects over other priorities, and if necessary, they construct the existence of norms that resolve normative conflicts, imposing order through the exercise of authority. But whilst rooting authority in that practice posits a basis for the authority claimed by norm-applying actors, it doesn't fully explain that method through which it's achieved. So um, on that, um, I thought it was useful to turn to Pierre-Marie Dupuis' metaphor of a grammar or a syntax common to international lawyers, which enables the creation and justifies the validity of international legal rules. Um, if you've seen uh, Dirk Polkowski's wonderful uh, recent book on self-contained regimes, he's updated the metaphor of grammar, and he's termed these techniques the discourse rules of international law, the grammar for communicative interaction that decision-makers use, um, whether it's in general regimes or issue-specific issue regimes, to situate our regime and to situate the norms that are applied in relation to norms of other regimes. And although 
the, to use a linguistic metaphor like a grammarian um, is a little bit imperfect. I think it helps us to understand the exercise of authority, not only is merely based in recognition of institutions um, that fill the vacuum of indeterminacy, but also the proficiency with which institutions master, adopt, and deploy the canons and discourse rules through which international legal discourse takes place. If we, if we assume, then, that law-applying authorities partake in these common discourse rules, then beyond their mutual recognition for one another, so um, if, if they recognize each other through these rules, they also assert authority for themselves by appealing to the general fabric of international law created by states. Um, they, um, they, they, they end up emphasizing, then, the commonality of the approach and suggest, essentially, by appealing to those rules, they're saying, look, listen to us, because we're using the same rules that you do, um, and then basically making, making it easy to facilitate the recognition of their approach as legitimate, and also then the legitimacy of their, of their engagement with the legal system. So um, I, think, I think one of the ways that we see this is that we see that even when departing from common discourse rules, norm-applying actors often will seek carefully to emphasize the particularity of, for example, a constitutive instrument or um, a, a, a specific type of factual matrix that allows you to depart from that rule. Um, and I think, and I think what, what they're doing in that is, is a bit of a normative move. They're, they're situating their own authority within the system. And again, they're strengthening the coherence of the system itself. Coherence doesn't become an inherent property of law. I don't think that it is. But a logical consequence of the constant application and use by systemic actors. Coherence is not necessarily the aim, but it's the result. I, um, I think I'll jump ahead to the last point. Um, which is, uh, I've, I've published an article that is forthcoming next year um, about this point on grammar and about the epistemic community of international lawyers. So I think, I think I'd like to just talk about that for one minute. Um, if we've got a system in which certain officials are um, perpetuating certain practices, are reconfirming our common discourse rules, then in order to gain membership in that community, so you as doctoral students, me as, a, as an, an emerging academic, what we do is we seek to master the, those same techniques and reproduce them back at them in order, to, um, in order to be accepted, to be validated as a participant. And um, what, if that is true, then, then the argument can be made that international lawyers, the international legal profession as such, constitutes a, a, a practice community, an interpretive community, or even an epistemic community. Um, because we, we, we inculcate and internalize in all of our members and all of our aspiring members um, a common point of view and an organizing experience um, through which we study our object. And that is what distinguishes, I think, public international lawyers from international relations scholars or legal anthropologists or sociologists who also analyze um, the way that international legal rules work and are applied. But they do so through a different inner logic, and that is, in many respects, what separates us as a community from them. Um, we, in particular, as lawyers, um, tend to look at texts, and we tend to look at texts in a certain way. Uh, we constrain ourselves, um, to, to, par partly because we want to secure acceptance of the way we look at that text by other actors within the system. So we start looking at the texts in a particular way. We, we adopt background assumptions and shared ideas, which then become part of our professional ethos. And as we do so, we then regenerate the standard and impose it on aspiring members of the community to judge the, the correctness and acceptability of, of interpretation. So 
in essence, the constitution of an interpretative community serves to constrain the interpretative process itself. It, it's, um, it is in this way, in, in, in many respects, that we also um, create another bound for determinability. We also remove um, the ability for any word to mean anything. And in this respect, I suppose, I'm departing from Artikoskinami's radical indeterminacy thesis because I think, I think the community itself serves as a constraining factor that tells us what is acceptable um, as, a, as a canon of legal argument um, and reconfirms that. Um, and I think in that respect, the interpretive community of international lawyers doesn't distinguish between officials very much. It doesn't matter if an international lawyer is an agent or an employee of a state, a judge, an international institution, uh, an academic or a private actor. Um, membership in the community demands adherence to those shared canons and we all begin to speak in the same way, we all begin to think in the same way. And that technical proficiency then defines our membership and emerges as our, our hallmark. In this slide, I think, um, um, I think uh, that feedback loop that we create, um, I think it's probably good to conclude on this point, but I think it's useful to situate the, the, the place of law applying authorities within that practice. If, if courts are also members of that interpretive community and repeat and reconfirm the way that we think about law, then I think that, um, how can I put it, then I think we go a little bit further to understanding the international legal system as not only a set of rules, but also uh, a system of officials, of agents, of actors that are engaged in this dynamic practice. Um, I think it serves to, to, rebut, to rebut that conceit that we can fully separate law from politics, not, although I think that I think it's important always to keep that distinction in mind. Um, that distinction only goes so far, especially when we're looking at something that is essentially a social construct. And I think, um, I think I'd, further research is needed, and that's part of what I'd like to engage with, um, and I will be engaging with uh, after today. Um, but to continue to identify that language, those tools um, that we use to validate legal argument, and that, that apparatus that we use to assess acceptability, um, in in better understanding that epistemic community of international lawyers, um, we can also better understand that immense normative influence that we wield over the development of international law itself. Um, I think that's probably a good point to stop. I know I've thrown a lot of ideas at you, um, and, uh, and I've done so very quickly, I suppose, but I think, I think this opens up the space to just continue talking and uh, take some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much.